And welcome into another episode of Turn the Corner, a Detroit Tigers podcast. I'm Karen Steckley. With me, still in Florida, your favorite beat writer for The Athletic. He's a free swinger, but only in the batter's box. He is Cody Stabenhagen. How you doing? Doing all right. I guess by the podcast, the time this podcast runs, I will not be in Florida. You will be a married man. So uh, we're fi- we're recording this quite a bit in advance here, trying to knock something out. If any of this information is dated, I apologize. But hopefully we can still talk a little bit of Tigers. Yeah, I mean, we were discussing, like, because you got a lot of stuff going on work-wise and then travel and then obviously, you know, getting married. So, like, you know, we're... Time is pretty precious, but I don't know. You and I just both feel like it's important to kind of put stuff out there and continue the process of, you know, doing this podcast. People seem to like it, and we like doing it. So, you know, I think uh, I think that's a good thing overall. Um, you, you brought up not doing it this week. It was like, should we do it? Should we not? And I was like, you know what? Let's put in the work. We're here to put in the work, all right? We fail. Yeah, it ain't going to be for a lack of trying. Exactly, exactly. So, um... As you said, if there's any sort of breaking news or some real development that we miss, that would be why. But you started out this week, Cody, with uh, a great feature about a, I don't know, I guess you don't really call him under radar prospect anymore, but a guy who was the definition of a diamond in the rough should he uh, continue this uh, progress that he's on, but Bo Brisky. We've, we've talked about him just a little bit on this podcast, but he's getting a lot of attention on Tiger's Twitter. His story's fascinating. Uh, here comes the shameless athletic plug. If you're not a subscriber, you should, because you'll get to read uh, features on these guys. Like, uh, what was he, 27th round pick? Uh, and comes from a college that you basically just know exists because it's a state college with a city name in it. It's not like you really even know anything about it. And if I didn't trust your reporter instincts, let me kind of, you know, intro it like this. If I didn't trust your reporter instincts and what people are saying on on Twitter, I would think it was kind of fiction. I, I'm sorry. Like, how does a guy increase his velo that substantially in a relatively short amount of time? I mean, I, there are certain things in athletics that are kind of innate and and. I mean, that's what part of what makes Brisky fascinating is that he has gone on this total body outlook transformation as you are putting these numbers together, as you're doing reporting, like, did you find yourself being like, is this really that believable? Is it really this possible? I mean, some of that stuff, it's crazy. Yeah. I mean, that's why I wanted to write about it because it's so wild. Uh, I, th- I think it's believable. I think there are, I mean, we've seen a lot of guys in baseball who are late bloomers. Obersky's a pretty extreme case, but I think there are probably some simple scientific explanations. Number one, you know, when guys are 18, 19, 20, you're not always done growing. Uh, you're not always done developing as an athlete. He continued to do that, put a lot more effort into training, got bigger, got stronger. Uh, but in addition to that, he learned how to pitch. Um, one thing I know Chris Fetter harps on a lot, and I wish I understood more, is the kinetic chain, right? Everything starts from the ground up. So if you have terrible mechanics, it can certainly limit your velocity, no matter how talented your arm is. I think chances are there was always this velocity in Bo Brisky's arm. He probably, I, I didn't see him, how he pitched as a sophomore in junior college, but 
Um, I bet his mechanics weren't any good, and he worked on that. And number one, he wasn't a pitcher only until uh, until after his sophomore year in junior college, so he hadn't pitched a lot. Um, I think that combined with the added training, learning how to use his legs to generate velocity, uh, I think it kind of makes sense why he's continued to just gradually tick up and up. And look, if he's able to sustain the velo he was showing in his uh, spring training appearance, we're talking, I think he does count as still under the radar because he's going to be a major league pitcher if he can sustain that. Um, how good, you know, I don't know, but a guy who I think could be a number four or five starter at the very least. He's currently, I think, the number 27 prospect on MLB Pipeline. Would not be shocked if he's ranked a lot higher than that next year or if he uh, makes his big league debut by midsummer. He had a great year last year in the minors, but he has been uh, really on a different level um, since he came down here to start minicamp. He was just toying with some of these minor league hitters and continued to impress in big league camp, can continue to refine the slider, uh, work in the changeup. But, I mean, if he's hitting 97 and that slider tightens up a little bit, this is a dude who could be a force, who could be um, a really great find for the Detroit Tigers. And he's a smart kid, got a great head on his shoulders. So one of those guys it's hard not to root for. Can I have you put your, your scout hat on for a second? Because... Uh... You, before this spring training slash minicamp extravaganza, had you seen him pitch before? Not in person, no. Not, okay. So what was that like seeing him, him go? In, yeah, I wrote a story on him in um, Erie last year, but he didn't actually pitch during my trip there. I had watched some video of him, you know, knew enough to kind of know what his makeup was. I guess the first time I really saw him pitch, pitch was in minicamp, and granted he was facing... A lot of, you know, probably 19, 20-year-old kids, but the way he was mixing in the slider and the change-up, I mean, these guys just looked hopeless. I mean, he made, look, Roberto Campos. Granted, he's known for swing and miss, but uh, just totally fooled Campos um, and, and a couple of other guys who were in his hitting group. And the stuff was there. You could tell the velo was there. The pitches were moving. It was like, oh, it did remind me a lot of how Tarek Skubal was two years ago. And when I was in Erie, I hesitated to make the Scoobal comparison because Brisky didn't have the same velocity, probably not quite as nasty of the breaking stuff. Tarek Scoobal's just a really high-level pitcher when he's on. I, I, Brisky still probably isn't quite at that level, but his jump in velo is like, uh, if he continues to do that, like he's the comparisons are there just in terms of these are two dudes who kind of came from nowhere in Arizona and were under the radar and have a chance to be big league pitchers. Yeah, so the natural thing to do is to say, like, well, because last year we're like, who's the, the Tarek Skubal of the system now? You know, now that Skubal is, is in the big leagues. But just based on what I know limitedly, it seems to me that might not be doing Brisky Story enough credit. Because Scoobal was right, what, ninth round pick? Is that correct? Ninth round? Ninth uh, round pick, and had he not had Tommy John, he would have been a pretty high round pick. So yeah. he was a much more well-known commodity than Brisky in actuality. Yeah, and Brisky literally started his career at a time where there was no hands-on development from the team that could be had. And let's be honest, when you're that late, like how much mental energy... 
are you putting toward those guys as opposed to the guys near the top? I mean, that's just just how it is in anything. So I, I kind of feel like the potential's there for this to be like, you're going to start saying the next Bo Brisky as opposed to like a Scooble thing because Scooble, like, as we said, was, I feel like, had a higher up advantage. I and mean, there's not even graphic. the 27th round of the draft anymore. It's that's not a very thing, good point. You know? Very good point. I mean, so we literally won't... <laughs> We'll never see another Bo Brisky, technically, with, with uh, in terms of, of draft position. Um, just for those that may have missed it, um, he is six foot three. I'm reading from a little MLB, so he's getting some love for ha- having a, a prospect performance in uh, on MLB.com. Six foot three, two no hit, four strikeout innings. Um, he's 23 years old, as you said. And among the guys that he retired, didn't strike him out, but among the guys he got out, Henry Davis, most recent number one wow. overall draft pick. So, uh, you know, not going up against scrubs. And and so I, I think the potential's there. And I encourage everyone to read the story because, as Cody said, like it's going to be very hard not to want to root for this kid who had various obstacles to overcome, just like circumstantial. I'm not trying to make it this big lifetime movie type thing but he had you know he just had right. circumstantial uh obstacles to overcome and it's it's a great story and that's one of the things that we love about baseball spring training and, and that kind of stuff um let, let's transition real quick to a more well-known pitcher that we're also getting new glances of is alex Fiedo. so tommy john surgery uh covid all that stuff has been a part of his his story. We're now seeing him, right? We're now seeing seeing uh, what the new look, and I kind of mean that literally because uh, the hair beard combination. He's a little, <laughs> he's a little, he's a little pitching Jesus out there. Maybe that'll be no, the new thing. No, it's shaved. It is shaved. Uh, oh, he shaved it. Have seen are dated. He is uh, basically a buzz cut and uh, you know stubble at best. So. No more pitching Jesus, unfortunately. Okay, well, he may not be pitching but Jesus, Jesus, but will he be pitching be for the Tigers? Because Jesus saves, so. <laughs> will he be pitching for the Tigers? What's what's what? What have we seen from Fiedo or heard? Yeah, from I think him? he. I think he definitely has a chance to pitch uh, in the big leagues, maybe at some point this year. You know, he's coming back from Tommy John, and he'll be ready on or around opening day. He'll start not in the majors. I'm curious to see if he even starts in Toledo. He could start, uh, maybe have a good weather outing or two in Lakeland or maybe in, in Erie. I don't know exactly where the Tigers will put him to begin the year. And in terms of his stuff, I feel like he's too fresh off surgery to really make a judgment. I mean, that was the first time he had stepped on the mound in a game setting, his, his most recent spring training outing since... 2019 like it's been a really long time for Alex Fido I guess spring of 2020 before uh, COVID shut everything down but look the velo is still there the velo was kind of ticking up when we when we left him in 2019 he's always had a very good slider he's always been a guy known for command he was viewed as you know kind of your typical high floor maybe low ceiling type of guy and as long as his recovery from surgery continues to go well um, he should meet that projection. I think he's a guy with uh, the slider and the command. You could see Chris Vetter getting the most out of him, whether that's a back-end starter or a, a long reliever. I don't know. Um, 
but I, I think Alex Fido is a good pitcher. You know, I don't think he's quite on the same plane as Mize Manning Scooble, but it would also be very foolish to forget about Alex Fido. As it wasn't that long ago we were talking about Mize Manning Fido, and no one knew who Tarek Scooble was. This kid was a first round pick, uh, proven pitcher at the University of Florida. He's going to be a contributor for this team, and we will see, you know, kind of what the next year holds for him before making any further judgment. You know, when we 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 talked about this a little bit during the off season, and as we're looking at some of the guys on the fringe, we talked about Dash Cameron and how we've sort of moved on just in terms of our cognitive space, but you know. It, it could happen. Real quickly is reasserting himself back in the mix. AJ Hinch uh, went out of his way to mention that. Well, and and that's great. That's great for him personally, obviously, and it's great for the organization. In a way, I kind of I know it's not the best of comparisons, but in a way, I kind of equate the two a little bit to where if they can prove themselves to be any sort of contributor, we're almost in. This is gonna sound a little bit more aggressive than I intended to be, but. Like, bonus territory. Like, there's a version where sure. Daz Cameron never has a single more at-bat for the Detroit Tigers. There's a version of the story where Fajardo never pitches for the Detroit Tigers. And, in a way, that's sort of our existence right now, right? So, if they can be serviceable guys at their positions or in their roles then you're you're a little bit of a surplus of talent than what you thought before. Is that is that fair to say about, you know, we'll, we'll put both of them, put both of them in there. Yeah, for the most part. I think it's interesting because if you were to project out the 2023 roster in 2019, like these dudes were supposed to be some of your mm-hmm. building blocks. You were still figuring out who your building blocks were. You wanted Daz Cameron to be your center fielder. You wanted Alex Fajardo to be um, in your in your starting rotation. A lot's changed in a few years, and the good thing is now the Tigers really know who their building blocks are. It's Green, it's Torkelson, Mize Manning, Scooble, and, and now you have Javi Baez to add to that mix. Um, so yeah, it, it is a surplus, but that's not to say, like, I am a proponent of every guy on the roster matters. In fact, you probably need 30, 35, 40 players who can be yeah. uh, good players for you throughout the course of a year. Um, so it's, I think it's important that these guys can become um, members of this team. Fiedo especially, because he, he should. There will be a spot for him. There will be room for him. Das Cameron um, will really have to earn his way to make a role for himself in the organization because he's been kind of pushed out over the past year. I think we have more realistic expectations for these guys than we once did, but that does not mean they aren't talented players. They were both first-round picks for a reason. Um these are the type of guys you want to get something out of. They don't have to be all-stars, but if you're going to have a winning team, you need to have a good back end of the rotation. You need to have a strong bullpen. You need to have a good fourth outfielder. Those are those are all important roles um, on winning teams, and, and sometimes those are the guys who matter most come playoff time. I was actually literally about to say, I know it's early, but, but then I was like, well, it is, but then it isn't because we're, <laughs> everything's at an accelerated pace. That fourth uh, outfielder job, uh, we, we, we finally got, as you put it out on Twitter, we finally got uh, some launch angle uh, comments regarding Victor Reyes, um, Derek oh Hill, uh, Derek Hill, my boy Derek Hill, 
is in the mix, obviously, as well. I don't think we have any concerns for Badu right now. He's he, uh, recently he's locked in. There. Yeah. He's, he's locked in. I, mean, I was more, I guess, saying generally he's locked in. And as you put last week, Riley Green, he ready. Um, and obviously, we know Robbie Grossman is like we don't even have to talk about him. It's like, what's Robbie Grossman up to? Oh, he's doing Robbie Grossman things. Okay, cool. <laughs> yeah. we'll, we'll 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 move on. But what's the shape, I guess, right now of of that that fourth outfielder job, and and is it, and if Daz Cameron is like a real AJ Hinch is going out of his way to you don't have to do that to give Cameron some kudos. That makes me think maybe he's a little bit more realistic for the job than I thought. Curious how much we should read into that now that I'm thinking about it. Um, Daz Cameron, you know, had some good abs in his first couple of spring training games, so AJ probably wants to reward the kids, say, we see you, you're doing a good job. I could also view that comment as a little head nod to Victor and Derek Hill. Like, don't think you guys just got this mm. made. Like, if you don't perform, maybe we'll give it to Daz. You know, I could see there being a little bit of that in, uh, in why AJ kind of went out of his way to bring up Daz like that, in addition to the fact Daz, you know, hit a couple of hard shots there in his A-Bs. Another thing I do like about AJ, he doesn't shy away from admitting where there's competition. He admits Green and Torque might just be on the opening day roster. He admits basically that, yes, there's a competition between Hill and Reyes. Some people in sports like to, I guess they don't want their their message to be misconstrued or like hurt a player's feelings, but he's like, yeah, Hill and Reyes, they have different skill sets. That could be a very tough decision. Um, I think if I were the manager, AJ Hinch suggestion box, I'm taking Derek Hill. I think he can just bring a lot as a late-inning defensive replacement, as a pinch runner. Um, I think you can just use him in more ways than you can really use Victor Reyes, especially because I think you're going to want Green and Badu and Grossman in your lineup almost every day. Reyes is a switch hitter. Um, you know, I guess he's probably going to be a little better against lefties than Badu, but Derek Hill, even though he's not known for his bat, he's a right-handed batter. Like, I think that could be useful for you. But Reyes, you know, every year, is he going to learn to tap into his power? Well, we've been saying that for four years now. I, like, I think it, there's only so much you can do. But sometimes we don't give Victor Reyes enough credit for being a productive hitter. Um, he's not a very patient hitter, but when he gets hot, he can do some things for you. I think it's a tough decision between those two, and I think we'll probably see both of them at varying points throughout the year, depending on... Um, how things shake out. Another point, if Riley Green, Derek Hill's best defense, the best asset is his defense. If Riley Green's going to be your dude in center, suddenly Derek Hill is not as valuable. So in a way, Riley Green could almost push Derek Hill off the roster if they just want to put Green in center every single day. And then that's probably when you take Reyes instead. It's a very good point. And you have Haas as a as a, another right-handed bat as well, who's going to play some left field. Is there anything? Is there anything to this new little like swing mechanism for Derek Hill? The the what is it? Just a stride forward? Like he starts out with his feet close and he strides forward? Is that the adjustment? Yeah, he's he's very upright. He's it's like an exaggerated version of what he's done the past two years, which is this Doug Lada shortened super compact swing and that's good now he's shortened it so much it looks kind of kind of funny i mean his feet are just so close together but 
talking to him is really interesting. Two years ago in Double A Erie, he was trying a like a toe tap, like a, Miguel does it a little bit, but even more of a Chipper Jones, like take a somewhat pronounced step back and then stride into the ball. And he realized when he was doing that, it was just kind of natural. He was comfortable putting his feet really close together and then launching at the ball. Um, it's easier to time if you just start out that way and swing. So that's kind of the genesis behind uh, how Hill has adopted this. Haven't really seen it translate to anything in these spring training games yet. Um, but he's a totally different hitter than he was two years ago, or at least his swing is vastly different. He's really put in the work to, look, there was a time we were writing off Derek Hill, like, oh, this guy's a bust. He's like not even going to be a factor. Well, uh, he's he's made his debut and is going to be in the running to get get some more major league service time, largely to largely a credit to the work he's put in to make some changes. All right, so we'll wrap up this outfield portion of the talk with uh, with some Parker Meadows exit velocity. What does it mean? Oh yeah, because you know <laughs> I always training. Let's read too much into everything, baby. <laughs> well, I always uh, whenever I'd see his brother like play in like the postseason or whatever, I'd be like, "Do y'all not have the ability to have the same trainer?" Because his brother's built like his brother looks like a serious weight room guy and i don't know if parker is or not but they just look different you know what i mean and uh and supposedly he's put on a little bit of muscle i don't know i can point to three different times this spring someone has said who's that tall guy it's parker (laughs) meadows dude looks like a different person all right okay okay he's just he's just grown up like he used to be lanky and pale and like I swear he somehow like got more of a tan, like or just a different skin tone. He always <laughs> he looked like been... his helmet was too big, you know. Yeah, like when he... <laughs> he might. You know, I wrote that whole story about the imposter. There might be an imposter. It, it, <laughs> it might not actually be Parker Meadows. He's got facial hair now. He's got long hair. He's added, I don't know, you know, how many pounds. He doesn't look skinny anymore. Like he looks a lot more like his brother in terms of the physique. So. It took him a while, but again, he was drafted at 18. Like he was far from a finished product dude looks so different like i keep like it's crazy unrecognizable might not actually be him well you know when you were and the swing is different maybe maybe this is not actually parker meadows you know (laughs) well when you're talking about like uh four years ago three years ago whatever like projecting the 2023 lineup uh i'm pretty sure he was in right or left field he was in there yes he was and similarly to the Daz discussion, I guess a little bit because obviously you know he's competing for a major league spot. Are we are are we writing off Parker? Because there are some people that are like, all right, it is what it is at this point. For the record, he's 22 years old now. Um, does not have a track record of hitting as a professional. I mean, where are we at with him? I guess. Hard to say. I would probably want to watch him like over the course of a month to really like give a better evaluation of, of what I think he is as a player. I think his swing changes look way better. That weird hitch double load is finally gone. He was kind of stubborn about changing it for a few years, I think, but it's, it's finally much quicker, shorter bat path. He's making good contact. His plate approach, like does he have a major league plate approach? Probably not. Um, now he's bigger and stronger. Can he hit for some power? I don't know. I haven't really seen it yet. I see him making good contact. I see him get catching the ball out in front more 
And for him, that's a huge stride. But he's posted some really low numbers in the minors. Um, he's yet to make it a double A. Yet to make it to double A. I think even kind of worse than Derek Hill's early career struggles. But I think Meadows this year reminds me a lot of Hill in 2018 or 2019, where it's like pretty close to writing this dude off. But every now and then you see him do something pretty spectacular. And he's got elite speed. He can be a very good defender. So he still has some tools that you like. Um, He's going to have to tie a lot together offensively to get that chance. But it would be premature to write him off. I I tend to think the idea of him being like an everyday outfielder is probably... That that seems like a stretch. I mean, I don't want to ever root against anyone. Torrey Hunter spent six years in the minors. Tiger Scouts bring that up all the time. So you never truly know. Um, I wouldn't totally write him off just yet. I would just set more realistic expectations. Yeah, that's fair. And as I look at the 40-man, because uh, the reason I brought up Parker Meadows is because he's another guy that if he is, and I, I don't mean it to be insulting to just keep using this word, but if there's some serviceableness there, I'm going to make up a word, serviceableness uh, <laughs> down the line, then that's another shot in the arm of the system. That's another one that you you essentially wrote off, and then you get this, and at this point you're sort of just trying to get anything out of the draft asset and uh, financial commitment that you made all those years ago. Um, we talk about a guy who's maybe slow-played the minor league train a little bit longer than what many had hoped. Maybe it was unrealistic expectations based on the origin of which he was drafted and his name, but I don't know what to make of Cody Clemens. Uh, personally, I, I, and this is not, I don't want this to come across as an actual assessment of what I think of his play. But when I just look at how much we talk about him, I don't necessarily think it's weighted evenly with with the output and high end potential. I like I, I I'm not trying to be mean here, but I no, think I c- coming from the University I mean, of Texas, yeah. his name's Clemens. You know, his dad will go into the press box, and his dad likes to go on social media and and you know like you know be a proud father. No criticisms there, but like that brings more attention like i don't know have you ever seen a tweet from parko meadows father like it's just it, it, it's uh it's one of those things where it's hard for me to kind of grasp and he was added to the 40 man there's you know he, he's doing all the right things about saying like you know i'll i'll play whatever first base second base get some outfield reps like i i like that i'm just saying i just don't know i just feel like we talk about him more than maybe yeah, if his la- if his name was like... smith i don't know yeah, the numbers are, are fine in the minors, but ultimately, like, unremarkable. Um, he's doesn't have a history of being a very good defensive player. I, I think it's cool that he's showing some versatility and playing different positions, but it's not like... Uh, I don't think his glove is ever going to be considered, like, a plus tool. I think Ron Gardenhire seemed to like him a lot. A.J. Hinch seems to like him a lot. I think he does have that kind of... Um, gritty ball player vibe despite being the son of a hall of famer a kid who's um obviously blessed with some talent and some bloodlines and grew up with a lot of money and all that stuff he still plays the game very hard no doubt about that he's got the same competitor 
uh, I think that that Roger was known for a little bit. But he's also, what, 26? I think part of the reason he's getting kind of this acclaim right now is the fact your other guys competing for infield spots have not impressed. Willie Castro, Isak Paredes, as we get closer to kind of moving on from these guys, it's like, who's pushing? Well, Cody Clemens is pushing him because he's hitting a little bit, you know? I don't think that means he's your everyday second baseman for the future, but I think credit where credit's due, you know, Willie's gotten all these chances. Isak has been this hyped prospect for a long time, and they haven't really produced, and the next guy up is kind of Cody Clemens, and if he um, can outproduce him this year, I think A.J. Hinch will use him more this year. Forgotten name in the infield discussion, Zach Short. I feel bad. He's just, like, being forgotten about, you know, he hit, I don't know, his numbers were awful in the big leagues, but really good defender. Um, I, I hope we don't totally write him off either. I, and I think there's a little more upside even in short than there might be in Clements. Well, short has made a couple of nice plays already in spring training. Uh, and as bad as the, the hitting numbers were, I there's definitely more pop in the bat than if you were to say what the eye test is. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, you know, credit to him on that. And so I, I guess when it comes to like infield construction, like, like, so you mentioned Willie, you mentioned Paredes, you mentioned, you know, we talked about Clemens, Zach Short. Uh, is one of those guys going to make break camp? Is, is Are they going to break camp with it? What's this extra person you might get dan uh dickerson was talking about on the radio recently yeah uh like is it more realistic one of them none of them like what how do you feel that um, out sounds like we'll probably not official yet at least not at the time of recording this pod but sounds like we'll probably begin the season with 27 or 28 guys on the major league roster if it's 27 it'll probably just be a pitcher though so i'm not sure that really helps the case I assumed and think I put this in my, my early roster projection that the Tigers would carry, what, Harold Castro and probably another infield-type guy. I think I probably picked Isak at that time, but Willie, Zach Short, Cody Clemens would all kind of be in that mix. I, I didn't think it would be possible to carry three catchers and Torkelson. Like, I thought if Torkelson makes your roster, that probably boots the three catchers idea and you just DFA Dustin Garneau. But I don't know. I was talking to some people who were like, eh, I think it could still happen. I feel like that really ties your hands. You got Miggy, Torque, Garneau, Haas. Like, you don't have anyone who can play second or short or third. I think that would be a – A.J. Hinch would not like that very much and that would put a lot of weight on Harold Castro. Um, but if none of these guys is really impressing – I think it's also important to know that the big league roster, the opening day roster, is not the roster you carry all year. So it's quite possible they could break with three catchers and Harold as your only utility infielder, um, and that might change within you know a week or two. So it's a great question. I think the thing probably that hasn't been talked enough about in camp is like who other than Harold can play second base for you, especially if... Um, say Torkelson doesn't make the roster and scope plays first. Mm -hmm. And then who could compete in for this last infield spot or is there even a last infield spot? I don't think we quite have the answer to that one yet. Um, hopefully we'll know more in the coming days. So the, I want to spend just a little bit of time on this. In fact, I'm just going to say a statement and then you just 
tell me where I'm incorrect, and then we'll kind of move on to another subject. So we've kind of already talked about this, but we did get a question on Twitter um, about the Correa signing people, offer thing. The people only want to talk about Correa. Yeah, so <laughs> I'm just going to say, like, one statement. So this is my understanding of what went down. Pre-lockout, offer Correa, the reports are 10 for 275. I'm sure there was some opt-outs in there and, you know, things like that. Uh, Correa was not going to sign for anything less than, or average, I would at least, than what Seager got. Because, you know, he wants to be the highest paid at his position. He feels like he's earned it. That's his right. No, uh, no pushback from me on that. And so he turns down, for a variety of reasons, the Tigers offer. At that point, they shift their focus to Javi Baez. And they still... As we, if you go back and listen to the episode when we when the signing happened, it was it was kind of weird, like into the night and, and and all that stuff. They settle in on six for what was it one uh, one forty uh, one forty, and they wanted a shortstop before the lockout. So when Correa was dragging his feet or flat out rejections, they focused their sights on bias. Any misconstruing there, and then we we can move on. Or is there anything added more context? That's that's pretty much how I understand it. Um, in a way, it is kind of a bad look that Correa ends up signing an only a three-year deal, what thirty-five million annual average value. But it was it was all just weird circumstances. I don't think the Tigers like necessarily misplayed their hand. Uh, you could argue maybe Correa misplayed his hand because he had a ten-year offer and he didn't take it because he thought he could get more. Or maybe he kills it this year and gets the money he's looking for next offseason because his deal has two opt-outs. We can argue for it forever, and we'll probably talk about it for the length of Javi Baez's tenure as a Tiger. Um, at the end of the day, like I think fans shouldn't have their pitchforks out because Carlos Correa yeah. isn't a Tiger. Yeah, let's just yeah, overall, I would just say relax on this. Like, I don't. I don't really think it's this missed opportunity. As much credit as as much as I think Correa is, you know, really good player and all that stuff. Like letting this linger, I just don't think is healthy nor good for uh, for the Tigers <laughs> fan out there. Right. Um, so speaking of that, though, quietly the past couple of weeks, and this was especially the case on you know Friday night, Saturday morning, whatever. I mean, the AL Central is kind of an interesting division. It's a pretty interesting division. You know, we Tigers have made all these moves uh, to improve the team. The the Twins made a litany of moves to uh, to be competitive this year. Obviously, the Correa thing. You know, getting Gary Sanchez and and all that stuff. And the White Sox are, I, I think, tell me if I'm wrong here, a relatively quiet offseason, but they're a really good team. They didn't have to yeah. make. They don't have to make any big splash moves. Uh, although I do believe they got Kaylee Jensen, I believe, if I'm misremembering. Mm, um, Kaylee Jensen is a brave. Oh, he's a brave? Okay. Uh, somebody, okay, I'm sorry. Uh, there's some former Dodgers, one of my Dodger friends was talking to one of my White Sox, whatever. Um, so regardless. But, and I, and the Royals are similar with the Tigers, where they got all this young talent that's coming up. They signed Grinky. Uh, I don't really know what to make of the Guardians, to be honest, but this looks like a pretty fun division now, Cody. I don't know where, uh, so that, that's, that was, 
tangent was inspired by one of our Twitter questions. Um, who do you think should Joe be the Kelly hottest right? Uh, Joe Kelly. Oh, okay, Joe Kelly. That's who. I, okay, that's who I was thinking of. Who do you think should be the hottest rival for the Tigers right now? Uh, the person, Gumby Fan sixty nine, love that name. Uh, suggested Sox or Twins. I almost would go the other way and say Royals. Cause I think you're riding the same train and you sort of like are bumping elbows. Um, but I don't. I, but obviously the two team, you know, two teams of higher profile or more recent success have to be up there as well. Where what where do you read on uh, on the division and uh, who could be the biggest rival? It should be noted last year, some shouting and all that stuff with the White Sox. So I think that's a really good question. It's kind of unfortunate. I think the Tigers' time as the second most interesting team in the AL Central was short-lived because the Twins, <laughs> people had kind of written off. They had this weird year mm-hmm. where they fell off a cliff last year and went out and made some aggressive moves, and now they have Correa. And it's like, oh, the Twins are going to be getting a lot more national attention than the Tigers, at least early in the year, I'm afraid. Um, who's the rival, though? I think it's the White Sox. Like. Because they're they're the big boys in the division. They're the team to beat, and they play with a little bit of a bad boy edge. Tony Larus is their manager. He's but kind of been construed as a villain. There's already been some bad blood between the Tigers and White Sox, especially if the Tigers are good and can push the the Sox for uh, you know a division crown. I think that could be a really fun rivalry in the years to come. Not that all these like I think the Tigers and Royals have interesting styles and the Royals have kind of a throwback style and now they have their young prospects on the way and who's actually ahead in their rebuild is is an interesting um discussion but I don't think it, I, I hope White Sox Tigers is really fun for the next four or five years yeah I mean a tale is all this time in sports is when uh when you're at the top of the mountain if you're the top dog and you got someone you know nipping at your heels you you tend to be a little, little spiteful, a little hateful for uh for the up and comers. Uh, so I think especially like the Chicago, Detroit angle. There's obviously multi sport history: Bears, Lions, Jordan's Bulls, Bad Boys, all that stuff. Blackhawks, Red Wings, and the original six. So I, I like that angle better. Um, but the Kansas City thing I think is also something that um should not be dismissed all right so this is actually a curious question that i have for you cody because i'm a i'm a big fan of process i i find myself just inherently interested in process when i watch a movie and they go from point a to point b i'm like what happened in between here that you like decide like they skip that part and it always irritates me um the tigers have a well-renowned bench coach and George Lombard we have been not I say we but you you're the one that's around the team have been on record as saying future manager it was a well-received hire at the time they got another year of him on the bench he is the bench coach uh what is the function of a modern we talk about modern day managers what's the function of a modern day bench coach and I don't know. Let's 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 give some shine this to George Lombard, a guy that we both hold in high accord, but we just don't talk about it as much because, like, bench coach. It's literally the only title that exists, like that doesn't translate to like 
other sports really as pitching coach, hitting coach, but you get considered that defensive offensive coordinator, whatever. Bench coach, what does that even mean? How does that work in today's baseball? And why is Lombard so well-liked? You know what? That's a pretty good question because I just realized, I don't know if I know what the bench coach does. <laughs> like, I know what George, I think one of, when I was asking AJ about George Lombard, I think one of his main points, he said, when he hired George as bench coach, his only concern was like, would that take the coach out of him? Bench coach pretty much is the manager's right-hand man generally still looking at some bigger picture stuff, game management stuff. I think the modern bench coach probably deciphering a lot of data, helping with positioning and and basically in-game moves and big picture stuff. Um, But where George Lombard has made his mark, I think is still day-to-day in the coaching, AJ says, you know, including himself. It's kind of a thing on our staff where we all have to remain coaches and work hands-on with players. That seems to be where Lombard seems like he's a very smart big picture guy too. And that's why he's considered a future manager, but makes his best impression working hands-on with guys. He's also your de facto base running and outfield coordinator, Um, super energetic. I went up to Robbie Grossman and was like, tell me about George Lombard. And the first thing he says was, I'm trying to make the most of this time because he's not going to be here long. He's going to be the next guy to get a big league manager job. Wow. Uh, AJ's like, I've never seen George Lombard have a bad day. Riley Green. Um, who's not even played a major league game, has a pretty tight bond with George Lombard. It seems like he's hitting them with little minutia, invisible to everything, but the most trained baseball eye that, you know, whether it's positioning, getting jumps, you know, your first step on the bags, probably things even more microscopic than that, that that I can identify. Lombard is like the dude with all the details, with just this wealth of knowledge, and he's young, and he's energetic. Yeah, I think uh, I would not be surprised if this is his final year as Tigers bench coach. I think he doesn't get enough praise. That's kind of why we're doing this because, I don't know, because he's in the dugout, right? Like, if you see him on TV, it's because they're showing AJ and he happens to be sitting next to AJ. You know, AJ's policy of not having uh, his coaches talk to the media, I think, is one reason why George is a little more underappreciated. Uh, Chris Fatter still gets plenty of publicity, but that's because he's shown on TV walked on the mound. The pitchers are always saying, well, Fett and I worked on this. And the pitching coach is just kind of naturally caters to being talked about more. Uh, I think Lombard, the fans don't know enough about him and what he means to this team because he's super central to everything that's going on. Yeah, well, it seems like he's one of those guys that... Uh... His difference may not be quite as measurable, and uh, if, if, if players are raving about him like that, he's obviously a good locker room presence. Uh, that's another thing that just can't go overlooked. Uh, 162 games, long, long seasons. You got to have guys that bring good attitudes. Never had a bad day thing. That kind of stuff's infectious. So um, I hope that through whatever mechanism people listening to the podcast getting noticed you know getting talked about on tv or you know on the radio and you know any some you know stories that get written about him i I hope he gets his due because i think uh even if he does leave after you know this this next season uh he, he does seem like one of those guys whose impact could be felt long after uh he he departs from the team so and it's also a credit to AJ Hinch for getting him to, you know, buy into his vision. And one of the best assets of a good manager is being able to hire good people under you. So um, 
you know, credit to AJ as well. And hopefully, hopefully George does get a managerial job. I got, I got his baseball card stealing the base. I go through old baseball cards all the time and I, and I've kept it. I've kept it because, uh, because he's a guy that I kind of feel like is an important part of the organization. So, and he was a hell of a football player back in high school. And I think that's fascinating. Yeah, he was. Yeah. An offer to go play running back at Georgia. I think, Kieran, we're, we're wrapping up here maybe a little shorter than normal, but George Lombard has inspired me for a quick Ooh, okay. College Chronicles. It's actually your story. I guess it's actually post-College Chronicles again, but never having a bad day. Tell the people um, about when you went to, what, Langston University, and a coach said something that inspired you, and we continue to use the saying from time to time. Yeah, so this was, I... Um... No, I was still in college, actually. This was because it was right before I was going to intern at the Tulsa World. So Langston University is a historically black university in Langston, Oklahoma, but it's basically 30 minutes, 25 minutes south of Stillwater, and so therefore a little, like, about half hour north of, uh, and I don't know if you guys can hear that, but my shop, uh, my uh, robo vacuum thing is beeping. So that's the noise in the background. If you guys can catch that, um, it's probably stuck underneath the couch or something. But anyway, uh, Langston University at that time, their athletic director, and I had several football teammates go play college there. So I kind of was familiar with the uh, with the university. Chad uh, Ocho Cinco went there, but didn't play. Um, he went there for like a semester or something like that. Then he transferred to junior college, went to Oregon State. Uh, Thomas Hollywood Henderson uh, went to Langston. And at the time, Mike Garrett, Heisman Trophy winner, was their athletic director. They needed a new women's basketball coach, so they hired Cheryl Miller. It's a big deal. He's one of the greatest you know basketball players of all time, especially if you narrow it down uh, to, to female basketball players. So they had this big press conference thing, and uh, the Tulsa World, since I was going to be working for them that summer, had me string for them and go write a story about the press conference and the hoopla and all that stuff. And so what I what I do is I often do is I'm always a fan of arriving places early. So I got there. It was probably like a 10 a.m. press conference or something, and I probably got there just after nine and I just kind of sat in their gymnasium all by myself there wasn't really it's a you know it's a small college like I you know I like it I there's not really that many people around so I'm just kind of chilling passing some time and uh, a a man that I assume was a like a football coach I think I don't know I don't think I ever looked him up I don't think I wanted to I don't think I wanted to know his name uh, but he was, he was, I think it was an assistant football coach, uh, just kind of walked in. He was going into the athletic department offices and, uh, he said, Oh, Hey, young man, how you doing? I said, good, sir. You know, how are you? And he looks at me, he has a big smile on his face and he says, it's a beautiful day in America. And, and, and that has resonated with me. And will resonate with me the rest of my life because, you know, I'm a white guy on a historically black college campus that's very small. So, like, everybody knows each other. I'm obviously a stranger. And just that attitude just in general, like, has, has stuck with me. It's a beautiful day in America. We, we, we have, we're, we live 
in very divisive times. And I'm not trying to be dismissive of the issues of which we are divisive. But man, we live in a beautiful time in many, many ways. And so I always go back to that. It's a beautiful day in America. It was very inspirational. It was a great time. Like the press conference, it was, uh, I, uh, you know, interviewed Cheryl Miller and Mike Garrett. And then I, I had, like I said, I had a couple of high school football teammates that went to school there. One of them was still there, even though he was a little older than me. And so I just asked somebody, I go, do you know Ricky Edwards? Like a student? He's like, oh yeah, I know Rick. So he calls Ricky and, and he's like, hey, one of your boys from Dallas is here. And so he, so Rick like leaves his apartment or whatever, comes to, comes you know down to the the quad, and we hang out for like three hours. <laughs> I it, this this <laughs> was a guy awesome. who like his father coached my little brother and also in uh, in youth football, and uh, my brother had a lot of developmental disabilities and stuff, and his father was probably one of the main reasons my brother Aiden was able to graduate uh you know high school and go into he's in the marine corps now and and all that stuff so uh definitely a deep connection between my family and his family um and um and so it was just overall a great day but i'll i'll always remember it's a beautiful day in america things get bad things get frustrating just say that to yourself it's a beautiful day in america it's a beautiful day in america i got a smile on my face now yeah, so never gets old. I'll remember that for the rest of my life. And it's great advice as well. So it's a beautiful day in America. It was beautiful to put together this shorter-ish uh, podcast. <laughs> still, still went pretty long. I can tell you what Alexa's reaction is going to be when I say we went almost an hour. This is my surprise face. Um, so... All right, we'll get out of here. Cody, I appreciate you fitting me in your schedule. Um, and I hope everybody has a great week. And we, I've had a couple messages of congratulations. Uh, I appreciate that. Um, means a lot. And if you guys could continue to read Cody's work, subscribe to The Athletic, subscribe to this podcast, Apple, Spotify. Give us a five-star review if you so choose. So for Cody Stavenhagen, for the last time, signing out from Lakeland, Florida. I am Kieran Steckley. Everybody have an amazing day.